Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Father, we look to your word today just to get a glimpse into what you are doing to rescue sinners. To welcome in those who are far off. You're bringing them near through the blood of Christ. And so, Jesus, our prayer today is that we would hear this message and we would grow in our understanding of how our God saves and we would join in that mission. Teach us today, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what we're saying is that God is either drawing you in. The Holy Spirit is either drawing you in or he is sending you out. And what we see here is that the, the Ethiopian is being drawn in by the Holy Spirit of God and, the, and, and Philip is being sent out to him. So I want us to fix our attention on how God is saving a people for himself. We're just going to make four simple observations through this text and I hope to be a great encouragement to you. First, the Holy Spirit prepares the sinner. The Holy Spirit prepares the sinner. This Ethiopian traveled over a thousand miles. Now, in our day, uh, Ethiopia is a small little country. But in in this day, Ethiopia was almost 
uh, was mostly everything below the Nile River. So it was a big chunk of Africa. And many scholars believe this guy is from Kush, which is kind of southern, is, is deep into Africa. So over a thousand miles he traveled uh, on a chariot to Jerusalem and over a thousand miles back. This is quite a mission that this guy is on. He, he is a seeker if we've ever seen one. He's curious about this God. He wants to know this God. He's, he's wanting to know him. So he travels all the way to Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, to worship He's coming to the Jewish temple to worship this God. Now, he's a Gentile, right? He's an Ethiopian. He's a Gentile. But based on the story, he's probably a God-fearing man seeking to know the God of the Jews. He'd come to Jerusalem, presumably, hoping to encounter God in the most holy place on the planet. But... When he left, he's still searching. He's still just as empty as when he came. And what we what we find is that religious piety, sacrificial systems, they'll never satisfy. They're just pointers to the one who truly will. This is it's no wonder why when people come to church, this is still happens. People come to church to to find God. Many Come finding religion, but never finding true relationship with Jesus. And they leave just as empty as they came. This Ethiopian is no different. He came to meet God, to have an encounter with God. And yet he finds only shadows and reminders and pointers. But he doesn't encounter Christ. Now, this Ethiopian, the Bible tells us, is a eunuch. He is set apart to serve and care for the queen of Ethiopia, the Candace. That, that's not a uh, proper noun. It's a title, kind of like Caesar or Pharaoh. The Candace is the, the leader, the, the queen who uh, leads in Ethiopia. And he is the caretaker of all the money. This guy has a lot of power. He has a lot of authority. He's been entrusted with a lot of that. But it came to him. Through the fact that he's a eunuch. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, I won't uh, give you tons of detail here. Let me phrase it this way. Um, He has some physical limitations that were intended to bring him close to the queen, but not too close. Does that make sense? Okay. He had been elevated to a position of great power, right? And this being a eunuch is how they trusted him so much. They took away a lot of the temptation uh, that might have caused distrust. But being a eunuch came at a high cost. Now, we don't know if he chose it or if it was uh, enforced upon him. We don't know that. But he's a eunuch. This position gave him the ability to make the journey to Jerusalem. So he has great authority. He has wealth at at his disposal. He's on a chariot ride for over a thousand miles. And just to give you the right imagery, we're not talking about the kind of chariot that Ben Ben Hur, you know, that uh, what is that movie I'm thinking of? Is it Ben Hur? Yeah, it's not that kind of chariot with the little circle and he's standing riding with one little horse. No, we're talking about a man of authority and power who's seated in sort of an upright canopy on these 
big poles and about eight men are walking him a thousand miles. Eight men got him on their shoulders and they're walking. We're talking a man of authority and power. We're not talking about a, a chariot rider. A man who's seated in his chariot. Now I imagine he had high hopes for this trip. He planned to visit the temple to make his offerings, to maybe talk to the rabbis, talk to the priests, possibly even get in to see the great Sanhedrin, the high priest, Annas, Caiaphas. He, he probably was thinking, I'm a man of power. I'm coming to a city of power. I want to meet the men of power who can introduce me to this God of power. We cannot know exactly how his visit went, but we know that it left him very disappointed, probably disillusioned. Maybe it was the profiteering, the materialism that he saw. You know, as you get near the temple, you see the area where Jesus flipped tables because men are selling the sacrificial items for a, a, a big markup, making a huge profit off people's worship. Or maybe it was the hypocrisy. You know, Jesus was always telling the Pharisees that they're such hypocrites. You, you heap on people a burden that they cannot bear and you can't bear it either. You hypocrites. Or maybe it was the religious rules, the intolerance, the exclusion. Maybe it was just the deadness of Judaism. I don't know. All I know is that he left as empty as he was when he arrived. What he came hoping to find, he left still seeking. God is setting him up. What I want us to see here is the active role of the Holy Spirit. It's really easy to see when we look at Philip because we see the Holy Spirit speaking directly to Philip. But with this Ethiopian, he's just moving the pieces around. He's putting him in a position of power so that he can make this journey. He's given him uh, the physical limitations so that he can be empowered to make this journey. All, All of the pieces in place God, the Holy Spirit, is maneuvering this Ethiopian. God is simultaneously working to arrange a meeting between Philip and the Ethiopian. The coincidences here are overwhelming. They're not just coincidence. Do you know that the things in your life, many of them are not just Coincidence. That's the reason I want us to start our thinking this morning with God is in control. The sovereign God planned a meeting on this journey. It wasn't in the holy city and it wasn't with a priest or a rabbi. It was on his way back to his own country, disappointed, disillusioned. It wasn't with a priest or rabbi. It was with a relatively unknown Christian. A very normal, regular guy. Not an apostle. Not a Navy SEAL Christian, right? Just a regular old Joe. Who happens, coincidentally, right? To run up beside his chariot. This Ethiopian is being set up by the sovereign God. Do you know that the Holy Spirit prepares the sinner? I'll tell you two stories really quickly. A few years ago, uh, a sweet lady in a church I was um, one of the pastors in, she asked me if I would visit her husband. Uh, She said, you know, I'd like for you to come and tell him the gospel. 
thought, oh, this sounds great. So I asked one of my mentors who was at the time serving with me, a much older and wiser pastor than I. I said, I'd love for you to come with me. I had watched this guy just really uh, listen to the Holy Spirit, follow God's lead and to love people well with the truth. And so I thought this guy would be a great asset. Uh, I want to come and learn from him. So I, I, I brought him along with me. And as we were pulling into this lady's neighborhood, she was pulling out. Um, and so we stopped, our car stopped side by side and through the windows, she said to me, um, he knows you're coming. I've just told him he's going to hell and that he really needs to listen to you. So, uh, the pastor friend and I both were kind of wide eyed, like, uh, we're being set up <laughs> and, uh, we knew this was, this was going to be an interesting conversation. Um, so we pull up to the house and we kind of said a quick prayer in the driveway. Lord, please don't let this man shoot us, please. We just asked for the Holy Spirit to lead the conversation and uh, we got out of the car. And after a little bit of small talk with her husband, he kindly but firmly told us he had absolutely no interest in our Jesus. He also reaffirmed that we were certainly not going to convince him and that we were wasting our time. Well, I'll be honest, I don't think I'd ever had that kind of experience before. And so I was looking to my older, wiser pastor friend to sort of lead the way. And thank God he did. He said, well, sir, um, I hear you. Um, I understand. Before we go, can I just tell you the reason why I think Jesus is the greatest news I've ever heard? And then we'll just pray with you and and we'll leave you on our way. And he said, sure, but just to remind you, I I don't care anything about you, Jesus. So uh, Pastor Friend shared a very quick gospel, just told him how he was lost in his sin and Jesus found him. And by the blood of his sacrifice, he could be forgiven and and that he had received Christ, that he had surrendered his life and trusted Jesus to save him. And he asked that man, he said, are you sure you have no interest at all in being rescued from your sin? And the man said, yeah, once again, I have no interest. So my pastor friend said, well, all right, let us pray for you. So we prayed and we left and we walked out and we got in the car and I was feeling like such a failure until my much wiser pastor friend looked at me and just taught me. He said, let me tell you something. The salvation of a man's soul requires the preparation work of the Holy Spirit. And today we didn't get to reap the harvest. We just got to sow the seed. He said, don't hang your head. We're in his preparing work today. That was such an encouragement to me because it took a load off me to know that salvation is God's doing, not mine. And in evangelism, whether or not someone comes to faith in Christ is not up to me. All all I'm to do is to share the message of the gospel and trust that the Lord has been tilling the soil of their heart. Well, in contrast, I want to share another story with you. Um, Similar. A good friend called me one day and she uh, was concerned. She was in tears. She called about her, her mother. Her mother was dying. 
of cancer and they'd only given her days or weeks. I don't remember. So a little bit of time. She called and she said, my mother does not know Jesus. She's very tough and resistant to the gospel and I really want you to go. I think you could speak to her. And I I thought, oh, here we go again. I was scared that I was going to have another really difficult visit, you know, that it was going to be hard and and rejection was coming. But because I love this girl and I want to share the gospel with uh, her mother, we went or I went alone this time. Knocked on the door. She came to the door. She said, I don't know you. Why are you here? Through the screen door. I said, I I know you don't know me, but I know your daughter. And um, she just asked me to come and talk to you and and pray with you today. I was hoping I could do that. The door shut right in my face. And I thought, well, okay, Holy Spirit, you're just not, you're just preparing, okay? So this is not the moment, you know, okay? I was trying to learn from the previous experience. I started walking away down the sidewalk, headed back to my car, and it was like the Lord said, nope, go back. And I was like, "Mm, I mean, you saw that, right? And so I turn around, I go back to the door and I'm scared. I'm like, okay, how's this going to go? I knock on the door again. She comes to the door and I can see it in her face. Like, didn't you get the message? And I I said, uh, I I know you don't really want to talk to me, but I feel like I have something you need to hear today. And something shifted in her demeanor and she let me in. That day uh, we had a very difficult conversation. I watched in amazement as the Holy Spirit began softening her outer shell. She was tough, but God was surgically precise. I don't know if I've ever had a more spirit led conversation in my life. We talked that day about how she thought her career was going to give her life purpose, but it had left her empty. We talked openly. I listened mostly. She talked openly about some of the biggest failures and sin in her life and how she felt like she wasn't ready to die. She was gripped with fear as she told me that she still needed to do more to be okay with God. And she finally looked me in the eye and asked me, do you know how I can be forgiven? I knelt down in front of her recliner that day and told her the good news of Jesus. And just a few weeks later, I had the honor of preaching her funeral and sharing that she had put her full confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. God is rescuing a people for himself. The Spirit of God prepares the sinner. And we can trust God to do the work of softening the soil of a person's heart. Our role is to go with the gospel. That leads us to the second reality we see in this text. The Holy Spirit prepares a sinner. And secondly, Christ sends his witness. Like we said earlier, Philip was leading one of the greatest revivals of all time. 
The Samaritans were believing and being baptized so powerfully that the apostles were called in to check it out. By all accounts, Philip's ministry was a huge success. Then God says, go, leave it. Really doesn't seem to make sense, does it? But for God, it was strategic. You see, Philip is leaving the masses to go and have an encounter with one guy. This has to be ridiculous. Unless you're God who is in the business of setting up and sending out. The command to go comes without any detail. He's just told to go down to a road that leads to a desert. And Philip shows great faith as he, the Bible says, he just rose and went. Simple faith often requires that we lay down our expertise. You know, that day at that woman's house, it made more sense just to go on and leave. But the Lord said, go back. Sometimes simple faith requires that we have to lay down our own rational understanding. You know, the proverb puts it right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your what? Own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Reminds me of when Peter and John had been working and fishing all night long, right? They hadn't caught a single fish. And up comes Jesus. They're cleaning their nets. They're done for the day, frustrated, disappointed. They're done with the fishing. And Jesus says, "Uh, go back out in the water and cast your net. And Peter, the professional, the expert fisherman, looks at Jesus. He's like, but Lord, I mean, we've been at this all night long and we've caught nothing. Maybe he sees the persistence of the Savior in his expression, you know, and he looks back and he goes, but at your word, I will let down the nets. (laughs) And there is this thing about simple faith that requires us to lay down our expertise and trust his wisdom. The Holy Spirit not only softens a sinner, but he sends the witness. As his church today, we are to live as a sent people. We are a sent people. Do you know that the church of Jesus Christ is the only organization in the world that actually exists for people that are not a part of it? We exist, we gather so that we can scatter with the gospel message. We exist to bring in the outsider. We exist to welcome in the one who's far off from the gospel. When Philip gets on the scene with this Ethiopian, he finds him reading scripture again. Coincidence? No. Not only is he reading scripture, but he's reading one of the most messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 that points directly to the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, Philip walks up, he asks, or he runs up beside the chariot. He asks the man what he's reading, if he understands what he's reading. And the eunuch responds, how can I? This is interesting. How can I? Unless someone guides me. Now, this passage right here and this question demonstrates the necessity of a witness to guide others to the Savior. God sent Philip, who traveled over 150 miles on foot, by the way, 
from Samaria, from a successful ministry in Samaria, now down to this desert road leading to Gaza. He sent him to meet one guy in one chariot who's reading the scripture. And he says, I can't understand it unless someone would explain it. Now, Philip is ready to explain it. He's prepared. But I want us to think for a moment about this Ethiopian's question. How can I unless someone guides me? I want to put a scripture on the screen here from Romans 10 verses 14 and 15. I want you to see how Paul uh, appeals to our rational line of thinking to convince us of the necessity of witness for the mission. Here's what he says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is amazing. Church, we are a sent people. And as we get further into Acts, we'll discover that we are to be a sending people. Constantly sending people out to the mission field. Constantly sending. Paul's question is how? How does, how does the world receive the gospel? And he asks that with four consecutive rhetorical questions. But here's the answer. Church, listen, here's the answer. We must go. We must send, we must give, and we must pray. These are the ways that we interact with the mission of God. We go, we send, we give, and we pray. None of us are excluded from any of those things. Every one of us are to go with the gospel. Maybe you're just called to go across the street or go to your coworker, go to the next cubicle or Whatever it may be, but you go with the gospel. We're called as a church to send. There will be some of us to to stand out among us and say, I feel like God's calling me to go to this people group. And as a church, we want to rally around that person and finance their trip. And that's where we get to the third one. We give. That's what I talked about earlier with our giving. We give to the mission of the gospel. Our elders, we're on on a plan, hopefully. To get to the point where where more than 50% of every dollar coming in, more than 50% is going to the mission. Now, the other 49 or whatnot is is going to the mission here, right? To support and and to equip and to do ministry here locally. But we want to send over 50%. That's massive. But it's one of our dreams. We're not there yet, but that's where we're headed. And then lastly, we want to pray. Once again, because it's his mission and we're just part of it. And we have to constantly lay down our expertise to follow his wisdom. Lord, I don't want to trust in my own understanding. This looks like a really dumb move for me. But if you're telling me to do it, I will go to the desert. I will leave this crowd of people who are looking for me to teach them. And I will go to that desert place. Don't know where I'm going or who I'm going to meet. But I trust in you. And how do we know that? Well, we pray. We spend time on our knees and we listen to the Lord and we follow his leading. 
God is sending his witnesses to every corner of the world. Are you open to him sending you? I want to call you. I want to speak. A lot of times I speak to a crowd, but I want to speak to you right now. Have you given a Jesus a blank check with your life? Have you signed away and said, Lord, wherever you send me, I'll go. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. Blank check. You fill it out. I'll just sign the dotted line. He is sending us to the nations and to our neighbors with the good news about Jesus. And that leads us to our third truth from this text. The word of God reveals Jesus as Lord and Savior. The word of God reveals Jesus as the Lord and Savior. I love Acts 8.34. This verse is powerful. Philip, after this guy says, I can't understand it, you know, and then he says, about whom is this prophet saying this? Is this about himself or is it about someone else? And I love what the scriptures say. Philip opened his mouth. Do you know to share the good news, you actually have to open your mouth? That little detail seems like it's unnecessary, but is it? Mm, For me, it's necessary. The Lord constantly have to say, Hey, um, you know, that's a good example, but they actually need to hear the gospel. Open your mouth. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Do you know that the Bible is a Christ centered story? This book is not about you. Did you know that? It's not about you. It's not about me. This book is about Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you flip it open to Isaiah 53 or Acts chapter 8. As Philip teaches us, this book is about Jesus. Beginning with this scripture, he told him about Jesus. I love that. Everything we read in scripture is predicting the work of Christ Preparing for the work of Christ, reflecting on the work of Christ or resulting from the work of Christ. It is all about Christ. So the Bible in your hand, again, is not about you. It's about Jesus. So when we open this word and we read, we should ask the Lord, show me Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, uh, I like him as a preacher, and he says some pretty strong things. And here's something he says. Preacher boy, Stephen, you ready for this? He says, preach Christ always, everywhere. He is the whole gospel. His person, his offices and work must be our one great all comprehending theme. Preach Christ You know, Jesus called out the Pharisees for how they handled the word of God. This is a strong rebuke. And in John chapter five, Jesus said this, quote, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Listen to what Jesus said. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
It's a Christ-centered book. It's about Jesus. And the eunuch is reading aloud from Isaiah 53. And Philip simply asked if he understood the message, which led him to say, is this about the, the writer or is it about someone else? And here we see Philip take hold of Jesus's discipleship of his apostles in Luke 24. If you remember, Jesus resurrected Jesus, brought them together, and he showed them how the law of Moses, the prophecies, the Psalms, all of it pointed to himself. So Jesus discipled his apostles and then Philip, being a part of the early church, was devoted to the apostles teaching. Right. So Philip knew when this guy asked me, what is this about? He knew the answer. It's about Jesus. Let me tell you, it's about Jesus. So Philip starts with this story in in Isaiah 53. He might have uh, You know, the the guy's reading like a sheep. He was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shearer is silent. He opens not his mouth. Maybe Philip said, let me tell you. I call this sermon the silence of the lamb. I don't know. But uh, Philip maybe said, uh, I'm glad you like that, Lou. Good. Thank you. Uh, Appreciate that. All three of you. Um, But Philip started right at this point. And he points to the suffering, sacrificial lamb of God. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 references the sacrificial substitutionary lamb. Really quickly, there's a lot we could do here, but I'll be quick. The Jewish religion, the Jewish faith is rooted in sacrifice. Do you know that? From the earliest of the scriptures, in fact, Adam and Eve... Their nakedness and shame. God covered their nakedness with what? The skins of animals. So from the very beginning, sacrifice has been part of the story. To cover your sin requires the death and bloodshed of an animal. To the Exodus story. The Passover lamb, the death angel is sent in and only those who take his blood and sacrifice a spotless lamb and put the blood over the doorpost. Only those households whose where the blood is applied, only those households will be spared death. The Passover lamb is a substitutionary sacrifice. We could go on the Levitical system of sacrifice. You read Leviticus. It's all about sacrifice of lambs. It sounds graphic and gruesome, and it is. It's intended to point us to the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. What did John the Baptist say when he was about to when he was baptizing? He saw Jesus coming in the distance. He said, behold, the what lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The concept of a blood sacrifice wasn't new. But the good news was that Jesus had finally fulfilled everything that this was pointing to. That it was no longer going to be a sacrifice needed time and time and time again. No, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. What Hebrews 12 says speaks a better word. Here's what I mean. Religious systems. Religion says to you, do. Here's what you need to do. 
to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be clean, to be washed. Here's what you need to do. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Jesus says, done. The sacrifice of Christ is not one that need repeating. And it's not one that you can do at all. It's one that he has done completely. Jesus from the cross, his own blood shed. He said, it is finished. It is completed, done. Nothing left to be done. It is done. Sitting at the foot of the recliner that day, speaking to a frail woman, soon to meet her maker. I asked her, and I want you to hear these questions. I said to her, do you expect God to forgive you? She said, of course. And I said, why should God forgive your sin? She squirmed a little bit. Didn't have a great answer. I said, do you know that God is a righteous judge? He's good. He's righteous and holy. And if he lets you off the hook free and clear, he's no longer a good judge. He's no longer righteous if he just forgives your sin. I read to her from Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7. I encourage you to read it, but basically it says that God is slow to anger. He is gracious and merciful. We love that part. But then verse seven says this. He will not clear the guilty. He will not clear the guilty. Let me tell you something. Forgiveness is available, but it is not free. Our sin must be paid for with blood. That is why Jesus came. He is the grounds upon which God can be both just and the one who justifies the sinner. Jesus is the only way to absorb the wrath of God against your sin. The wrath of God must be expiated, must be atoned, it must be absorbed. And it will either be absorbed by you or by Christ. But Jesus came to be your substitute. That's the good news of Jesus. This lamb before its shearer was silent, not because it was guilty, but because it was dying in the place of the guilty. And Jesus is the innocent one who died for the guilty ones. The gospel of Jesus is that he's done it all. Religion tells you do. Jesus tells you done. Have you put your hope in Christ alone? Have you pointed someone else or someone struggling in despair, looking for hope? Have you pointed them to Jesus? Have you told them, let me tell you who you can hope in. Let me tell you where real joy is. It's in Jesus. Jesus is the way. And there are no barriers, no borders to cross, no exclusions to get to God. He has come to you. It's all about 
Jesus. Fourthly, the gospel of Jesus breaks every barrier. Are you thankful for that? For me, there were so many walls, right? But Jesus broke every barrier to get to me. And the beauty of this story is the result. God has been sovereignly working, both setting up the Ethiopian and sending out his witness, Philip. And and they've come to this uh, incredible, coincidental, God-appointed divine meeting, right? Philip has told him the good news of the gospel, but the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. We are just laborers in his field, called to be faithful with the message, and he handles the rest This whole encounter, this whole thread of conversation hinges on questions that this guy is asking. The Ethiopian says, how can I understand unless someone guides you? Philip says, well, maybe I could help. Well, come on up into my chariot. I imagine the four or five guys carrying the chariot didn't really love that. Hey, man, this is a thousand mile trek. You're just picking up hitchhikers. What's the deal, right? Who is this prophecy about? The Ethiopian asks. Philip says, it's about Jesus. Then he says, what prevents me from being baptized? I love that question. What prevents me? Built into that question is a desire and an awareness of limitation. Now, I want to tell you something. All of us have limitations. But Jesus is the great barrier breaker. This Ethiopian eunuch was so aware of his limitations that he was an outsider, not welcomed in the inner court, and that his body betrays his own soul. That he even framed his question based on what disqualified him. He's so aware of his limitations that he frames his question based on his disqualification. It's what he had come to expect. He'd come to grips with his own hopelessness. This guy had at least two strikes against him. One, he was a Gentile. So his heritage betrayed him. He was not born into the chosen people of God. Instead, he would need to be grafted in or adopted in. His heritage was a barrier to him coming to God. He didn't look like, sound like, talk like, act like Jews. Because he wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile and all his life he'd been on the outside looking in. And secondly, he had been castrated to serve the queen. You know, we know this guy not by his name, but by the Ethiopian. That means Gentile eunuch, which means castrated. Right now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the law specifically forbids a eunuch. From entering the assembly of God. You can read it in Deuteronomy 23 verse 1. It specifically says any man who has this thing done cannot enter the assembly. I don't know if you know that or not. But let me tell you, after traveling about 1,200 miles from southern Africa up to Jerusalem to try to get near to God, this Ethiopian eunuch arrives to find a sign outside the court of the temple. And here's what the sign read. No lie, this is history. The sign right outside the court of the temple says, No lame, no blind, and no eunuchs may enter here. So after an over thousand mile trek to meet with God, he finds only barriers. 
Only limitations. Maybe he'd heard of the hope for eunuchs in the prophecy of Isaiah. Do you know that just a few chapters after Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 56, the prophet says this. Let the eunuch no longer say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who embraced my covenant. I will give you in my house a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Maybe this eunuch is exploring the prophet Isaiah because it's the only place he's found hope. Even if he wanted to trust in this God, he couldn't. Everywhere he turns, he finds himself on the outside looking in. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus overcomes every limitation. Maybe today you'd say, but I can't. I can't have relationship with God. I'm I'm addicted to drugs. Jesus is the barrier breaker. Maybe you'd say, I I can't have a relationship with God. I'm an adulterer. I've, I've cheated on my spouse. And I want to tell you, Jesus can welcome you in through the gospel. We could go through a laundry list list of things, but we all know what it is for ourselves that seems to be the barrier between us and the good news of the gospel. And here it is. Jesus overcomes it all. Physical, mental, spiritual, whatever the barrier, there are no more walls, no more barriers. He himself is our peace. Ephesians 2, 12 through 14. Paul writing to the Gentiles, remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has Broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ has in his own flesh broken down the walls. He's the barrier breaker. And the eunuch for the first time is receiving this good news. So when they come up on some water, he's like, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, in Christ, nothing That's the gospel. What prevents me from identifying with Jesus? Nothing. He's done it all. You can be saved. Jesus has done it all. What is preventing you from being baptized? I love the picture of baptism. We celebrate it again today. I love it. It signifies at least two things. One, your identity with Christ. His death, his burial and resurrection. You're saying the old me is dead and a new me is alive in Jesus. Identity with Christ. And secondly, you belong to God's people. You belong to the church. 
Because God is your father, you now have a forever family in Christ. So today, you're either being set up by the Holy Spirit or sent out. If you're not a Christian today, I'm so glad that you have connected with us. Maybe you're watching us online right now, and I'm so glad you're hearing this message. And what I want you to know, what Jesus wants you to know is that you can look to him as your perfect substitute. There's nothing left for you to do to be forgiven. He wants you to be forgiven in Christ. He wants you to be baptized into his family. He wants you to become a fisher of men. Maybe today you're being set up so that Jesus will save you. Or if you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. You belong to him. And you are being sent out with the good news about Jesus. So like Philip, be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Go wherever Jesus sends you, no matter how crazy it seems. And open your mouth to speak the good news about Christ. And trust God with the results. If I could say nothing else this morning, I'll say this. Remember, the gospel is not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has done. Let's trust him today. Celebrate. And be sent out.